All right. Thank you in advance for your generosity. This is a generous group of people. We do believe that with everything. So thank you for uh, doing what you can to meet the needs for people when they are in need um, and and just looking for for some help. So, hey, good morning. My name's Andy. I'm the Connections Pastor. You just heard from our lead pastor. As Whitney said, he'll be back with us uh, next week. And um, and so this week you got me. And, you know, I'm wondering, we're, we're in this series on real love. And to get started this morning, I'm kind of wondering who among us this morning has ever studied a foreign language. Let me see your hands if you've studied a foreign language to some degree. You don't have to be like a, a fluent in that language. Okay, so a lot of hands went up around the room. Like many of you, um, I did the obligatory two years of Spanish in high school where I sat in a class and learned practically nothing, and that's on me, not on my teacher, because I wasn't taking it very seriously. In fact, uh, 20-some years later now, the only thing I really remember from that class is I remember how to see necessary ir al baño, which I believe means I have to go to the bathroom, but I'm not even sure if that's what that means. Um, and it is weird that that's the one thing I remember. I can't figure out, you know, why I was saying that so frequently that it's stuck in my head all these years later. I must have been trying to get out of class or something. I don't know. But, um, it, you know, if you have studied another language, maybe it was the, the high school languages that you took. Maybe you spent some time overseas uh, living or working or on a mission trip, and so you wanted to acclimate to the culture there a little bit, so you learned language. Maybe you grew up in a bilingual home. Whatever it was, when we study language, one of the things that we begin to see is we see how, how in some ways the English language can be very inadequate to fully express what we're trying to say. Let me give you an example of exactly what I mean here. So uh, this is a series that we're in that we started last week called Real Love. And at the center of this series is this concept of what is love. And so if you hear an American talk and, you know, in one sentence, uh, I might say, hey, I really love my wife. She is the best. She is awesome. I'm so grateful for her being in my life. And then a few minutes later, you're like, you know what? I really love nachos, you know? Um, there's this, there can be this little bit of confusion for somebody who might be new to the language, who, who doesn't, hasn't lived in it. You and I have, many of us, I'm not assuming everyone online here in house today, I'm not assuming everyone, this is your first language, but if you've spoken this language long enough, you've learned how to interpret the meaning from the context, even when I use the same word for my wife as I use for nachos. Now, somebody who's new to the language might hear me say that and think that he's weird. He's romantically involved with a plate of chips and cheese. That's so bizarre, which I am not. Let's, let me just make that on record. That is so weird. Um, but the idea that we use the same word in this context and that context is rather bizarre. Other languages really don't do this. So let me give you an example of uh, something from you know, another language. So in the Greek culture, which is uh, the language of the New Testament, it was written in primarily in the language of Greek, because at that time when uh, the New Testament was being written, the Jewish people were subjects to the Roman Empire, and the language of the empire was Greek. And so within the Greek language, there are at least four separate words in the New Testament that are translated into the English word love. Did you know that? There are four separate words from Greek that translate into love, but each of them has a distinct meaning from the others. So in one case, you've got this word eros, which 
speaks to romantic love. It would be love between a husband and wife, love between romantic partners. It's, it's something where, where I'm so deeply in love with this person and it's romantic and it's a little bit different than these other kinds of love that we're going to talk about. There's another kind called storge, and storge is the kind of love that I have for my children, I have for my mother and my father. It's a family love. It is a tight bond of kinship based on familial ties. There's another kind of love, which is phileo, which is the kind of love I have for you. It's the kind of love where we have a brotherhood, we have a friendship, we have a bond, a a, a connection there. And so I feel a sense of obligation and a sense of connection to another person who I'm not related to and who I'm not romantically involved with. That's phileo love. There's another kind of love that's really the love which is the basis of this entire series that we're in, and it's the word agape from the Greek. Agape is different from all of these other kinds of love because agape love is completely, 100% unconditional. The thing about agape love is that there are no strings attached, and it is the one of all of them that is perfect and constant no matter what. It's the kind of love that God has for us. So last week when Dave was kicking off this series and he was talking about how God loves us, he was talking about agape love, unconditional, unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor and love from God. It's agape love. And so in this season, in this series, we're, we're in a four-week series right now called Real Love. And we're looking at love from different aspects, how we love others and that sort of thing. So last week, Dave kicked us off talking about how God loves us. Today, I want to take this in another direction and talk about how we love God, Okay. And so if you were with us last week, Dave laid the groundwork for this series when he read from 1 John chapter 4, these verses. So you have to understand this. John was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. If you haven't heard Dave's message, go back and listen to it. It's posted online on our website. It's, it's really worth listening to. John was, in many ways, very, very, very connected to Jesus. There was a very tight friendship between John and Jesus. So if any of Jesus's 12 disciples can really speak to the depths of love, I really think John is kind of the, the one that has the most, the loudest voice on that subject. He wrote to the church in three separate letters, and one of them he wrote, um, and, and we have it preserved for us today in 1 John 4, verse 9. This was the groundwork. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So this is the definition we are working with. Love is from God. Love is, was displayed by God through the sending of his son, Jesus. So again, we're talking today about how we love God. Now, in order to get there, I want to I bring out one of the verses that will be familiar to many of you, and it speaks primarily to the love that we have for God. It's one of the most common passages when people talk about loving God, and it's something that when I say it, it's going to be like, oh yeah, I've heard that. I know what he, where he's going with this, okay? And it's interesting because the verses that we're going to read, um, it, it's actually, there are a few places in the New Testament where Jesus talks about this command, and it, it's actually from the Old Testament where it was originally given to God's people to love God completely. So let's take a look at this. It's in Matthew chapter 22. 
in an interaction that Jesus has between him and one of the groups of religious leaders. Now, let me give you a little bit of background so you kind of know what has happened because I think it really sets this up beautifully. Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 22, he's been preaching and teaching and healing sick people and raising dead people. You know, he's been doing a lot of things publicly. And what has happened is that the people who used to be really, really, really important and influential in that culture and in that society are losing their grip on their influence. What I mean by that is this is a, a, a culture that is centered around God. And so in a culture like that, the people who are the most important and most influential are the people who can best interpret what God means, what God says. And so the, the religious leaders of Jesus's day were the, you know, at the top of the food chain. Everyone came to them because they were so important. They could interpret things. And there were these different groups of them. There was a group called the Sadducees, and they believed one thing. And there was a group called the Pharisees, and they believed another thing. And a group called the Essenes, and they believed another thing. And there were all these different sects of them, and they were separated by their beliefs. And, and people would kind of gravitate towards this group or this group. But what happened when Jesus came onto the scene is that all of them, their influence began to diminish because Jesus' influence began to increase. And a lot of times what Jesus was saying and what he was doing was challenging their authority and challenging their interpretations of God's scriptures. And so the people were kind of turning away from these religious leaders and turning to Jesus to hear what he had to say on the matter. And so in Matthew chapter 22, we have this setting where Jesus has already been dealing with the Sadducees. Okay, the Sadducees would often these groups would try to trap Jesus. They would try to get him to say something that would discredit him publicly. They would try to trick him into saying something that would make him look like he doesn't know what he's talking about, back him into a corner, make him uh, say something he shouldn't say. And so they would often set these things up. They would conspire against him. They would get together and they would huddle and they'd say, okay, what can we ask him? that will get him into a weird position and publicly he will discredit himself. And so they would come to Jesus and they would say, okay, what do you think about this? You know, and they ask him a question. So the Sadducees had already done that before the, the verses that we're going to read. And so in verse 34, we see that the Pharisees heard that Jesus had already silenced the Sadducees with a, his reply. And so they met together to question him again. So the, the Pharisees have gathered together and they're like, okay, they struck out. Let's give it a shot. We've got to get this guy out of here because he's stealing all of our influence here. Verse 35. So one of them who was a, an expert in the religious law tried to trap him. So you see that their, their motives were not necessarily pure. You know, they, they, were, they were legitimately trying to cause harm here. They were trying to trap him with this particular question. So teacher, they say to Jesus publicly in front of a crowd, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now, I want you to think about this. Um, if you're a parent, I'm sure watching online, I'm sure there are parents in here today. Um, have you ever had one of your kids come to you and say, Mom, Dad, which of us is your favorite? <laughs> have you ever had that? And, and then you're like, uh, uh, I don't have favorites. They're all, you're all equally loved, you know, and that sort of thing. It, it's, it's a trap, right? Kids are coming and they're trying to get you to say something and, and uh, maybe use it against their siblings in the next argument or whatever, right? And so, and so the Pharisees have this, this same sort of motivation. They are trying to trap Jesus into saying something. So if Jesus says, this law is more important than this law, they can come back and say, ah, but here's the significance of this law. And so if you say that that one's more important, you're saying that this side of humanity or whatever is not important. So 
you know, there you go, zing, you're, you're, you're done. <laughs> and so there's this whole um, attempt. And so they ask him, which is the most important commandment? Because if he goes on record, he loses that influence. When I was a kid, Mr. Hubbard, my PE teacher at my grade school, Central Elementary School in Alliance, Nebraska, came to us and he said, okay, kids, um, today we're talking about baseball. Which is the most important player on the diamond? And I was the first to raise my hand. I said, the pitcher because I wanted the pitcher to be the most. And he said, okay, anyone else? And somebody else said shortstop. Somebody else said center field. Somebody else said first base, catcher. There's several opinions. And he just listened to us and let us explain our reasoning for why that person was most important. And then he says this. He says, you're all wrong. Every part is equally important because if you, you can find that out because if you take one of them out, you will see how badly the team falls apart. And so this idea was true with the law of Moses. So when this religious leader was saying, which one is more important? It, it, was, it was like saying, take a stance, because if you take that, if you take, you know, put that above any other law, you're essentially diminishing the rest of the laws, and they all hang in the same importance. In fact, the religious law of Moses was um, defined as, you had to obey all of them equally. And so Jesus is backed into this corner, you might think. He's been asked this question that has this ill intention. And his response is really, really brilliant. Look at what he says. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, this is a, an Old Testament verse that, uh, a command that had come from Leviticus. It was known as the Shema. It was something that was um, put before families and they would repeat it to their children. And it was like, we must love God. Essentially what it's saying is love God completely and love him perfectly. Love God completely and love him perfectly. This was the standard that, that the people had been trying to live up to for years and years. And so Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. This is the first and greatest commandment in verse 38. And then in verse 39, he says, and the second is equally important. He says, love your neighbor as yourself is the second. So you've got one and one A, two very, very important verses. So he has taken a position, and you can almost imagine everyone is stepping back, the Pharisees, and they're getting ready to share why he's wrong. And then he finishes it off with this. He says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. In other words, what he's saying there is, if you fully live up to this standard, loving God perfectly and completely, and loving people perfectly and completely, you will never break any of the laws that are in the law of Moses. Now, you may or may not know this, but there were over 600 individual rules that made up the law of Moses. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you do these two things, you will fulfill all of them without any misses, without any sins, without any shortcomings. So there's always this emphasis on loving God completely. Now, I grew up in the church. Some of you I know grew up in the church. Maybe your church setting was different from mine because we know there are a lot of different types of churches. In the churches that I grew up in, there would often be this emphasis on loving God more, okay? Because if you take Jesus's words literally, that, that if you live up to the standard, you will fulfill everything that, that the law required. And so there was always this, this understanding that if there is a shortcoming in my life, if there is a, um, uh, an issue of sin, if there is an issue of, of something that just keeps holding me back, some kind of stronghold, then the answer is always, I have to love God more. And so 
in this, this culture that I grew up in, there would always be this emphasis on, you've got to love God more. You'd hear preachers say it with a red face, and they'd be sweaty, and they would be intense, and they would be passionate, and they would be shouting, and it would be like, and I'd be like, okay, 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 I believe you. But how does one do that? How, how do you love God more? Like, where does one even begin as we try to grow in our love for God? See, you and I, we, we live in a world where actions dictate outcomes most often, right? And so many of us understand that if there's a certain outcome that I want in my life, there are actions that I take to get there. For example, if I want to be healthier, I have to take diet and exercise very seriously, if I want to retire well, I need to save, I need to invest, and I need to live on a budget. If I want to be a published author, I need to do some, uh, some daily writing and some creative thinking and, and write down my, you know, so there are all these actions that lead to a desired outcome. And, and so we look at those and we think, okay, so what actions lead me to loving God more? But, but where do you begin? Because how can you even begin to gauge something as nebulous as loving God more? You know, how do you measure that? How do you, what is the metric that shows that I love God more today than I did yesterday? How does that happen? And so we always want to apply action. We've heard that love is an action word, which it is. Love requires action. You can't just say, I love somebody. Your, your actions have to show that you love that person. And so we, we think about this and we say, okay, so love looks like this, so I'm going to do this thing. And love looks like that, so I'm going to do that thing. And, and, and at the end of it, when we've exerted ourselves and we've begun to do these different things that are what love looks like, we back up and we evaluate. And if we're honest, we can, we can honestly say, I don't know that that really affected how much I love God. We live in a world where this, there's this like principle of cause and effect. Cause and effect. Causes precede effects, right? So um, in, in the case, let me ask you this, uh, this question. When it comes to getting a healthy body, does the healthy body come from diet and exercise? Or does diet and exercise come from a healthy body? Think about that for a moment. I mean, it's a pretty silly question, right? We all know that one leads to the other. Diet and exercise is the cause. The effect is this, uh, this, this change in our, our physical appearance and our physical health. This is a universal principle. But here's what happens. Sometimes we mistake the effect for the cause. It would be like taking, I've got a picture here. Let's put that picture up there. This is a, a Tesla um, Model 3, I think, is what we have here. What if you took that Model 3? And this is the assembly line that makes the Model 3s. What if you took this finished car and put it on the assembly line at the beginning and, and let it go through the process after it's already been completed? What, what would you get at the end of the assembly line? You would get a damaged Model 3 with a lot of parts laying on top of it, right? That's what you would get. You don't take the effect. You don't take the end result and put it at the beginning as if it's the cause because that's just not the way it works. It always works where this precedes that. The cause leads to the effect, not the effect leading to something else, all right? So cause always precedes effect. So in the context of, of a Christian life, I want to be a follower of Jesus, okay? Okay. If I were to ask you today, what are some of the 
outward displays? What are some of the effects that I should see if I'm a follower of Jesus? What are the, some of the things that you should see in my life if I claim to be a follower of Jesus? Well, if we were to go around and you raise your hand, somebody might say, well, usually in a, a, a relation, when you're following Jesus, you want to serve him. Yes, ding, ding, ding. You, you want to serve. You want to you exert yourself toward his causes. Good. Um, somebody else might say generosity. We talked about that a moment ago. Serving people in need and, and meeting needs and, and, and growing, um, you know, and giving generously. Uh, time with him, right? That might be another evidence of, of an outward display of my love for God, sharing my faith. Now, these are all good things. These are all things that should be a part of our lives. But here's what I want you to understand. These things are effects and not causes. These are things that come from a growing, loving relationship, but they are not the source of a growing, loving relationship. Now, I'm going to come back to that here in just a moment, so stay with me. So here's what you need to understand about... um, the, the question that Jesus was answering when the Pharisees came to him. Remember what the question was. Don't miss it. It wasn't just, what is the greatest command? It was, what is the greatest command in the law of Moses? Now, if you've been in the church for a while, you may already know this, but there, were, there was an old way of relating to God and a new way. The old way centered on obedience to a bunch of rules. The new way was faith in Jesus Christ. The old way was what Moses brought, and it's the law of Moses. And so what the, the, the Pharisees are saying is, which of these 600 plus rules is the most important one within the law of Moses? Now, here's what you need to know about the law of Moses. It was all about actions. And the weird thing about it is that there was somehow there was this hope that outward behaviors would in, affect the inside heart. You know, that's what the law was. It was like, man, if I do enough godly things and I obey enough and all of this, maybe someday I'll fall deeply in love with Jesus. That's what the law of Moses was. And I want you to understand this. That was never supposed to be a plan that was going to work. It was never going to work. Galatians talks about how God knew it was, you know, at some point it would be replaced by a, a more meaningful, effective way of relating to God. So, The law of Moses was all about outside-in transformation. Maybe my actions will affect my heart. But when Jesus came, he changed the way everything would be done in relationship to God. Instead of outside-in transformation, Jesus made it so that we believe and we have faith and we have transformation within that leads to outward manifestations of our relationship with God. So it's completely reversed from what was in existence before that. So when the, when the disciples are asking this question, or excuse me, the, the Pharisees are asking this question, they're asking, under this old way of relating to God, what is the greatest of these commandments? Now, I want to I look, as we draw to a close here in a few minutes, I want to look at another interaction that Jesus had with some Pharisees um, that will kind of help to bring this all together. In, in Luke chapter 7, there was this this invitation from one of the Pharisees where Jesus was invited into his home. Verse 36 says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went into his home and sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet. And she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, 
In our context as Westerners in this modern day, this would be one of the most bizarre things we have ever seen. If somebody came in and started doing this in, right now to, to somebody in this room, we would all be like, that is super weird. What in the world is going on? Like, we've never seen anything quite like it. But I want you to understand this. The context of that day and that culture, this wasn't a real weird, out-of-place expression. It was a pretty extravagant version of a common expression. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus was a guest in this Pharisee's home. And as a guest, more often than not, when a guest would come into somebody's home, remember they wore strapped sandals and they would be open toe and, and it was dusty roads and so your feet would be dusty. And so whenever somebody entered into a home, the guest would sit down and a a servant from the home would come and wash the feet of the, the, the person, the, the honored guest. And if it was a really honored guest, they might actually anoint him with oil as a sign of reverence, as a sign of honor. And we see later on in this chapter that Jesus tells this Pharisee, you didn't do any of those things. This woman is doing what you should have done. I came into your home and it's your responsibility to provide somebody to honor me as the guest. This is a cultural thing to wash my feet. It was very common. It was very normal. And then anoint me with oil. And so this woman is doing what this Pharisee should have done. And it's something that nobody in that room can overlook. I mean, it's so obvious that something's going on, right? You've got uh, multi-sensory experience. And so you're sitting there in the room and nobody's overlooking that this woman is there. You can see her down at the feet. You can see, you can smell the perfume wafting through the air. You can hear her sobs. Everything about this moment, all attention is drawn to this action, this display of love, this outpouring of affection that this woman has for Jesus. And so in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw what this woman was doing, he said to himself, so this is like his internal thinking. He says to himself, if this man were a prophet, speaking of Jesus, he would know what kind of woman she is uh, who is touching him. She is a sinner. So it's like indignant. He's like, she's icky. And, and this just proves that Jesus isn't anything special because he would not let this icky woman touch him or come anywhere close to him if he really was a prophet or came from God. And, and, and I love verse uh, 40. It says, then Jesus answered his thoughts. That's what my translation of the Bible says. Now, that's really interesting. I don't know if that's because Jesus, you know, being fully God could actually hear his thoughts in his own head. Or I don't know if it was just something where he just, you know, he just knew who Simon was. He knew where he came from. He knew what kind of Pharisee he was. He knew how Pharisees generally think. And he knows what he's thinking as this woman is doing this stuff. And so, Jesus speaks to what Simon is thinking internally. And he says, Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. And so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon's response was, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. That's right, Jesus says. So there are a lot of, of observations one can make from this story. I've heard people preach and teach on this particular event many, many times, and there are a lot of different things that one can really focus on. But for the sake of our time today and for the sake of our purpose, I really just want to focus on this woman's display of love toward Jesus was a very 
outward, very expressive, very um, visible manifestation of something that was going on within her. And, and she had been given a, forgiven of this great debt, and her response was this outflow of love and devotion. See, Jesus gives us an idea of where this had come from. This woman is displaying her love so vividly, so outwardly, because this debt had been forgiven. At some point in the past, this woman had encountered Jesus during his teaching. And at some point in the past, we don't know exactly when this was probably, but at some point in the past, this woman had had an interaction with Jesus where he, he looked at her unlike you know, anyone had ever looked at her because he saw value in her. And, and we don't know who this woman was. We don't know what her immoral sin was. But a lot of scholars believe she was probably a prostitute and had a lot of shame. Just w- really well known in that community um, for this, this sin that she was uh, tied up in. And so Jesus at some point had encountered her and she had uh, heard him talk. And she was like, and, and at some point she received love from him and received forgiveness for this debt that she owed to God. And so here she is, these days later, she is kneeling at his feet, she is weeping, she is wiping his feet with, with her tears, she is anointing him with this, this expensive perfume, and she's doing this not so that she can grow in her love for God, but she's doing it because she loves God so much. Does that make sense? This display in her mind is not a cause to try to fall in love with God. It's an effect because she is so deeply in love with this man who has seen her, who has forgiven her, who has loved her, and would, within a few days from here, go to the cross and give up his life for her. You see, I really believe that when you ask the question, how do we love God more? The answer is very simply this. If you want to love God more, the input is not doing more things for God, but the input is growing in your awareness and your understanding of the depths of God's love for you. Because you see, this is the truth about love. Love comes from love. Love is a response to being loved. And I believe this woman shows this so clearly, this outward display of love that she does and serving the rest of her life. Many scholars believe she was one of the women who was um, there to anoint Jesus when he was buried. So she was with him the rest of his, his life, you know, following him and serving him and loving him and was probably radically transformed by his love for her. So love comes from love. And it is a response to being loved. If you want to grow in your, in your love for God, I challenge you to take time every day to just meditate on how deeply, how much he loves you. And like the verse says that we read at the beginning, God showed us his love by giving Jesus to be our sacrifice. So if you focus on Jesus's sacrifice, that's the picture of God's love for you. And the more we think about that, the more we are aware of that, the more we spend time thanking God for that, the more I believe we will see our love for God grow and increase. And it will be a game changer for you in how you live every day of your life. So let me pray for you. Uh, Father, thank you so much for, um, for loving us to the extent that you do. God, thank you so much that as we sit here today, as we watch online, Lord, there's a... Um, there's a very real sense that, the, that we are loved by you, God, not because of what we've done, 
but because you are good, because you created us as people to be loved. We are your children, and, and there is an undeserved, unearned, unmerited love that you have extended to each and every individual watching or here in house today. And Lord, there are people here who are trying to figure out, how do I grow in my love for God? And Lord, I pray that today you will help us to understand that the key to growing in our love for God is spending time learning about your love for us. The more we focus on your love, the more we will see a natural reaction, a natural response of love going back to you based on your love for us. So God, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see this and, and, and empower us to this end. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.